This morning it's my privilege to welcome uh, John Tucker. Come on up, John. Uh, Reverend John Tucker is the uh, principal of the Kerry Baptist College. Uh, it was my privilege around about two months ago to sit on a call committee and, <laughs> and poor old John, grilled <laughs> as you do, don't you remind you of that? Yeah, and uh, to discern the will of God, that's the better way of putting it, isn't it? And um, it, was very, it was very heartwarming to be able to uh, announce to the Baptist community and the wider community that John's the new principal. Uh, John, you're married to Lorraine and you've got how many children? Three. Three. Yep, uh, uh, 14, 12 and 10. 14, yep. 12 and yep. 10. Yep. Very good. You sound like you'd be a busy man yeah. those, uh, yeah. those ages. Yeah, right. and, and John, um, tell us, what church did you go to when you were a youngster? Grew up at Mount Albert Baptist Church. Yeah. Um, and um, that was, that's my Turanga Waiwai. Yeah. Um, that would make its way into my pepiha, really. That, that was home, and that's where I first got a vision of Jesus and the gospel and, and the church. Yeah, what he wants you know, for the church and yeah. for our world. So um, that was really formative time. So that's why you went off and trained to be a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're all allowed one mistake, aren't we? Isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, that's right. I know. I know. How yeah. did I end up there? And wow. two years was enough to know that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life being, oh, is that right? being a lawyer. So I was a litigator, so I was, an, I was a courtroom yeah. lawyer, and, you know, peddling, it felt like I was peddling in people's conflict. When it got really septic, it came across my desk, and I went in and argued, you know, their case for them. And, wow. and in the end, I, I decided, actually, this is really, um, I don't like conflict. So, uh, and then felt a call to the church, thinking, well, that'll be a great, and oh, arrived in church. That is peaceful, <laughs> lovely, calm. Church leadership, yeah. No problem, everybody yeah, agreeing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's Parallel right. universe yeah, somewhere, yeah, that's eh? Right. Yeah, well, yeah. church is always about, you know, yeah. normal, normal people, that's isn't right. it? That's yeah. right. Hey, um, and then you went to college, and then after college you graduated and went to Milford Baptist Church. Yep. So yeah. how did that go for you? So I had six years there. Yeah. It was, um, I don't know whether I'd, you know, the principal then had, was, was very wise to sort of let me go to a place like Milford Baptist because it had just been through a terrible split and, and mm. everyone under 50 had, had left. There was this wow. kind of rump of faithful older people left. And I remember at our induction, they said, could the children's ministry, the, you know, let's have this, the Sunday school come up. This was the Sunday school leaders and their two children came up and sat on the stage. And I thought, oh my goodness, this oh. really is, I was, you know, 29, 30 years old. So, yeah, so you would have had some more kids yourself then at that point, wouldn't you? Yeah, church growth, natural yeah, church yeah, growth. Yeah, that's, that's what right. I thought, yeah. Um, yeah, but, but God wonderfully, graciously um, led us and, and drew people in, and, and we saw some wonderful, wonderful growth and, yeah. and transformation. It was a wonderful time, actually, and we were loved. You know, church is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Eh? It's yeah. amazing, isn't it? Mm. Off to, back off to college, yep. did a PhD, yep. and what did, you, what did you major in there, John? Uh, the history of the Baptist movement in New Zealand and our engagement with, with public debate, social issues, um, okay. to church society. Mm. Wow, wow. Mm. Prohibition <laughs> your, your eyes are glazing been, over. Yeah, prohibition <laughs> would have been um, part of that social debate uh, yeah, 100 it was. years ago, it wasn't was. it? It was, we were that's real right. Big leaders in prohibition. That's right, yeah. Yeah, we drink to that now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then eight years as a principal. Uh, no, well, um, eight, eight, oh, years sorry, as a, eight years as a lecturer, as a lecturer, lecturer now yeah, a principal. That's right, and yeah, that's right. Yeah, mm. so it's a big challenge. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, John, it's real, really fantastic to have you here. Howdy, my tenakoto, tenakoto, kato, matua, John. Yeah. Welcome and great. Just speak to us. Thanks. So I leaned across and whispered in Craig's ear during the worship that. 
I, I, I felt to change what I was going to say. Um, I preached in the first service, and, and just as I was reflecting particularly on, on what was coming through in our time of worship, I said, do you mind if I change the message? Not telling Craig what the message would be changed to, and he said, whatever you want, John. So he's trusting me, and, um, and I, I'd, I'd like to share with you from an, a passage of Scripture that I think has something to say to us today, this morning. So um, could, we, could we open our Bibles? Turn with me to, to Esther, Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 1, if you have a book with Bible with you. If you don't, that's fine. Um, Esther chapter 1. Now, before we get there, can I tell you about a, a report that the UN published just a few weeks ago? I don't know whether you saw this. It was, it was in the, the headlines of our news. It was a report on, um, on child welfare in the OECD, in the, in the developed countries of the world, that the state of children and young people in the developed world. And what grabbed my attention was, was that New Zealand was at the bottom. It was at the wrong end indicator after indicator of children and youth health. Um, it was an indictment of New Zealand society, basically. And, and the particularly concerning figure for me was that New Zealand still, to this day, has the highest teen suicide rate in the developed world. Every, every week, on average, two New Zealand teenagers will take their life. And many others will, will attempt to. Why would a young person take their life? Well, there are many reasons why people commit suicide, but one of, one of the reasons, according to psychiatrists like Viktor Frankl, is a loss of hope. When hope is gone, people give up. And so this morning, I'd like us to spend some time reflecting on, I, I think, one of the most hope-giving stories in the Bible, the story of Esther. So if you have a Bible or you've got a phone and you want to look at your app, then, um, then let's, let's, let's read from the, the start. And I'll just take us through the first, the first section, the first scene, if you like, of this book, Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present for a full 180 days, six months. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace. For all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the woman 
in the royal palace of King Xerxes. Now, on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, was roaring drunk, in other words, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, whose names are all difficult to pronounce, so I won't, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. And the text goes on to say that on the advice of his lawyers, his legal experts, he fired the queen. He divorced his wife and passed an irrevocable law of the Medes and the Persians that said that Vashti should never again step foot in the king's presence. And so there we go. In that opening scene, we get a glimpse of the kind of world in which the people of Israel were living. I mean, this, this book of Esther is, is a remarkable political memoir. It's set around about 470 BC, about 470 years before the birth of Christ. And it's in modern day, what is modern day Iran? And there you get a sense from the scene of, of, the, of the world in which the people of God were living. This King Xerxes, from his royal throne, royal throne rather, in the citadel of Susa, he reigns over a larger percentage of the world's population than any emperor or king in the history of the world. That's why they called him Shahanshah. That was his title, King of Kings, because he did quite literally rule the known world. His word controlled everything and everyone. Now, for the Israelites, for the people of God, the covenant people of God, scattered through the provinces of, of this kingdom, as God's judgment on their sin, they're scattered through his, this, 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 this foreign nation, this foreign empire. The idea that Xerxes is the most powerful man in the world sitting on the throne in the capital of Susa was, was a somewhat concerning reality. Because Xerxes is clearly a self-obsessed, hot-tempered, impulsive narcissist with a, with a swollen ego and a short fuse. Now, now, can you imagine anyone this immature ascending to the most powerful political position in the world? Surely not. I mean, surely not. And yet this king trumps the odds. Sorry, apologies. He, he trumps the odds and he... He sits on the throne in Susa. So the writer of this story wants us to understand in the opening scene that this is a world where no one, not even the queen, is safe. Now let's continue with the story, but we'll continue from inside the story. Let's experience the Word of God in a slightly different way this morning. Well, when the king sobered up and his anger cooled down, he started to regret his decision. He thought, why did I do that? Queen Vashti's, you know, she's all right. I've got no queen. 
And so his personal attendants, his, his young bodyguards, they advised the king. They came up with a cunning plan. They said, why don't you, your majesty, appoint talent scouts in every province of the empire and, and, and get them to, to choose, to select, to identify the most beautiful young virgins, bachelorettes, in, in all 127 provinces of the empire. And, and, and gather them, gather them up, bring them into the royal harem, put them through 12 months of, of intensive cosmetic treatment, beauty treatments, and then at the end of those 12 months, let each one of these young women spend a night with the king. And the one who pleases you the most will be your queen, your new queen. Well, Xerxes thought about this for a moment and was rather fetched with the idea. The apprentice meets Miss World. This is the perfect reality contest. This will be fun, he thinks. A lot of fun. And so with a click of his fingers, with, with, a, with a word from his mouth, the most beautiful young girls from all 127 provinces of the empire were gathered up in a net and dragged into the harem of the king in Susa. And one of those young girls, those contestants, was my orphaned cousin Hadassah, Esther. And she, I'd raised her as my own child. She was my little girl. And she'd grown up to be a beautiful young, young lady. So I shouldn't have been surprised when they came for her. But it was devastating to think that, that my little Esther would be brutalized, would be violated by an uncircumcised Gentile. For her sake, though, I said to her, Esther, sweetheart, play along. Play the game. Don't resist. And whatever you do, don't let anyone know that you're a Jew. Because we have many enemies here. And so Esther played the game. And she played it well. Because when it was her turn to spend a night with the king, Xerxes was so enraptured with her almond-shaped eyes and her, her glossy black hair and her lovely lithe figure that in the morning, he took a crown and placed it on her head and proclaimed her Queen Esther. My little girl, Queen Esther. And then, of course, to celebrate, the king had to throw another boozy banquet for all his leading officials, right? And so he did. And, and one of the men at that banquet was, was an official called Haman. Now, in Hebrew, Haman sounds like the word for wrath. And that was a very good name for him because he was a vicious, he was a vengeful, he was a, he was a spiteful, wrathful man and an Amalekite, a descendant of Agag, the Amalekite. Now, you remember, remember the Amalekites, don't you? How, how they viciously attacked the infant nation of Israel when, when, when the people of Israel were making their way out of slavery, emerging from slavery in Egypt. And the Amalekites attacked us to destroy us. And, and God said that because of the way the Amalekites had had attacked his people. He would be at war with them from generation to generation. The Amalekites were our oldest enemies. And so when, when the king appointed Haman to be the prime minister, 
the senior figure in the empire under the king, and when the king announced that every single royal official in the palace administration should bow down before Haman and honour him on their knees, I refused. I alone, of all the royal officials, refused to bow down before him. Now, was it pride? Was it prejudice? Was it principle? I don't know now. But I do know it was stupid. Because when Haman saw that I alone, of all the palace officials, refused to bow down before him, he burned with rage. And when he found out that I was a Jew... He resolved to find a way of destroying not just me, but all my people. He went to the king and he said to Xerxes, Your Majesty, there is a people group scattered throughout the provinces of your empire. They follow strange laws and they disobey your law. It's not in your interest to tolerate them. They should be destroyed. And the king in typically impulsive fashion, without even bothering to find out who these people were, he took the signet ring off his finger and he handed it to Haman and he said, do with these people as you please. And so Haman did. Called a press conference and announced that he was, he was issuing a decree that on an appointed date, on a certain date, the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews in every province of the empire were to be killed. Every man, woman, child. The people of God, my people, were to be annihilated, swept away in a holocaust. And not only that, when you think about it, the promise of God to redeem this world through a descendant of Abraham, the father of Israel, that promise itself was going to be swept away. Now, when I heard that edict, when I learnt about that decree, I thought to myself, what hope do we have? I mean, what hope did we have? We were a small, defenceless, ethnic minority scattered throughout an empire that was ruled by, by hostile pagan forces. We had no hope. So I ripped my robes in despair, in, despair, in, gr in grief. I, I poured sackcloth on my, I put sackcloth on and, and, and ashes on my head. And as an expression of extreme distress and hopelessness, I staggered out into the public square. And when Esther learned about my response, my grief, my lament, she messaged me. What's the problem, Mordecai? And I responded by forwarding to her the text of that decree. And I said to her, forget about concealing your identity and saving your own skin now, Esther. You need to go to the king and plead for your people. She replied by saying, but you know that, that if anyone approaches the king unannounced in, in, his, in his private chambers, the only law for them is, is death unless the king should extend favour and, and, and hold out his golden scepter and spare their life. But, it, but it's, it's 30 days or more since the king last sent for me. He doesn't favour me like he once did in the first blush of our, of our marriage. 
And you've seen this king. You know how, how impetuous he is, how unpredictable he is. He's dangerous. If I approach the king unannounced in the inner court, I could die. And I texted straight back these words. Esther, don't think that just because you are queen, you alone of all your people will be saved. You will not escape this genocide. If you remain silent at this time, you and all of your family, we will perish. And then I said this. But who knows, Esther? Who knows? Maybe you have come to your position for just such a time as this. There was a, there was a pause. I didn't hear from Esther for a while. And then she replied and she said, all right, gather together all the Jews in the city of Susa and fast for me for three days. And then, then I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So on the third day, Esther put on her loveliest robes. And she went and stood in the magnificent inner court of the king's palace, directly in front of the throne room. And she stood there. She waited, trembling. And when the king looked up and saw her standing there, his lips curled into a smile. And he held out his golden scepter and he said, Esther, come here. What is it? What do you want? What is your request? Up to half my kingdom, it shall be granted to you. Now, you have to understand how king talk worked in those days. This was code for, Esther, I'm feeling kind of generous today. I'm in a good mood. What can I do for you, sweetheart? Would you like a cup of tea? Would you like me to give you a back rub tonight when we're watching Netflix? I mean, the king was not literally offering up to half his kingdom. Esther still had to play her cards very carefully. And so she said to the king, May it please your majesty, if I have found favour in your eyes, would you come tonight to a banquet? And, and, and bring Haman too. Would you come to a banquet that I have prepared for you? The king, who liked banquets, liked food and wine, said, of course. And so that night, the next, that, that night, the king and Haman found themselves at, at Esther's banquet. And after they'd had a few courses, and uh, along with that, a few glasses of Shiraz or whatever it may have been, and was a little tipsy with wine. He said, now Esther, beautiful Esther, what is your request? Up to half my kingdom, it shall be granted to you. This was the moment that Esther had been waiting for. And what does she say? She says, if the king regards me with favor, and if the king is willing to grant my request, then would he and Haman come again tomorrow night to a, to a second banquet, and there I will present my petition. So that night, Haman, the prime minister, he bowled out of the king's palace, heading back home in the highest of spirits, thinking, who is as Blessed and fortunate as me. I am so honoured. I mean, I'm the only person alongside the king 
who the queen has invited to these private banquets. But Haman's high spirits came crashing to the ground when he bumped into me at the king's gate, at the palace administration block where I was working late. Because when I saw Mordecai, when I saw Haman, I refused to bow down before him. Again, I stood my ground. And Haman, I could see his his teeth clench with rage, his brow darkened, and he stormed off into the night. And when he got home, apparently, he could contain his wrath no longer. He was so enraged with my refusal to honor him that he decided to erect a massive stake six stories high in front of his mansion, a six-story high shish kebab skewer. And he resolved that first thing in the morning, he would go to the king and ask for permission to have me impaled on that pole. But that night, that very night, the king had difficulty sleeping. The king had difficulty sleeping. And he was tossing and turning in his chambers, and in the end he called out to his attendants, bring in the book of the Chronicles, the record of my reign, and and read to me. And so they did. They unrolled the scroll and, and they started to read. They read a story about how, how one of the, the palace officials working in the administration center of the, of the palace uncovered a plot by two of the royal guards to assassinate the king. And this official, he, he was loyal to the king. He, he reported the plot and the king's life was saved. And the name of that, that, that official was Mordecai. The king was still musing over the story, reflecting over what had been read to him when he found himself with, with Haman at the queen's banquet, the second banquet. And again, when the king was tipsy with wine, he said, Now, Esther, what is your request? Up to half my kingdom it shall be granted to you. And Esther said these words. If I have found favor in the king's sight, then your majesty, would you spare my life and spare my people? Because we are about to be destroyed, annihilated, all of us killed by your enemy. And the king said, what? Exploded with rage. Who would dare to do such a thing? To touch my wife? And Esther pointed one finely polished fingernail and said, Our enemy is this vile Haman. Well, Haman locked up in terror, the king jumped up in rage and stormed out of the banquet hall into the palace garden to cool down. Esther remained on her couch. Haman, recognizing that his number was probably up, that the king had probably decided his fate, turned to the queen and and started to beg beg her for his life. And in desperation, in desperation, he ended up throwing himself onto the queen at the exact moment that the king should choose to re-enter the banqueting hall. 
And the king said, wow, would he even dare to molest my wife while I'm in the house? And no sooner were those words out of the king's mouth than one of the eunuchs serving the king's court stepped forward and said, your majesty, a six-story high pole has been erected in front of Haman's mansion. Apparently, he intends it for Mordecai, the Jew, the official who saved your life. And the king said through gritted teeth, impale Haman on it. And so they shishkebabbed Haman, the prime minister, on the very pole that he had intended for Mordecai. And with the king's prime minister gone, the king needed a replacement. And so who did he appoint to the role? The official who had proven himself loyal, the man who had saved the king's life, Mordecai, the Jew. The king took the signet ring, the ring of power and authority that had been on Haman's finger, and he placed it on mine. And then with the king's authority, I quickly drafted a new decree, called a press conference and announced that on the 13th day of the 12th month, every Jew in the kingdom was allowed to defend themselves from attack and kill anyone who should attack them, their women, their children. And so on the appointed day, when our enemies had hoped to overcome us and destroy us, the tables were completely turned. My people defended themselves and no one could stand against them. No one at all. Why? Because now every official in the, in the empire answered to a new prime minister. He was a Jew, and so they stood with his people. Against all odds, we triumphed over our enemies. Our fasting was replaced with feasting. And you know, it's every year since that date, every year, on my instructions, the people of Israel have remembered and celebrated God's great deliverance of them with a feast, a banquet, the banquet of Purim. Well, let's change mode for a moment. Do you like that story? I mean, do you find... Isn't that a gripping, compelling narrative? No, obviously not for some of you. I mean, I think this is a great story. Do you realize it's the only story in Scripture where God's name is not mentioned once? You notice that? God doesn't appear once by name. And Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, I mean, for that reason, he believed that the book of Esther shouldn't have been in the Bible. But I reckon he was wrong. I mean, I think the absence of God's name from the text of this story is part of its genius. It, it's what makes it so brilliant. Because for the people of Israel at that time, scattered through the nations, dispersed through the kingdom of, of Persia because of God's judgment on their sin, it often seemed to the people of Israel like God was absent. 
It often felt like God had abandoned them to the judgment of exile, to the consequences of their sin. And yet the message of the story is that in spite of Israel's sins, and in spite of of the way things looked, God was still with them. He was protecting them. He was guiding them. He was fulfilling his promises to them. He was faithful to them. He was with them. I mean, think about the incredible series of coincidences in the story. I mean, you can list them. I mean, how is it that of all the women, all the young girls in this massive empire, the biggest empire the world's ever known, it should be a young Jewish girl called Esther who wins a beauty pageant and becomes queen. I mean, and how is it that of all the the possible people that could have become prime minister, of all the the officials in the palace administration who might have uncovered a plot to assassinate the king. It should just so happen to be Esther's cousin, her older cousin, Mordecai. And how was it that of, that of all the nights that the king should suffer insomnia, it's the very night when Haman plans to unleash this genocide? And how was it that of all the stories that should happen to be read that night, it should just so happen to be the story about Mordecai saving the king's life? How is it that Haman, this wrathful, vile Haman, should end up skewered, impaled on this massive spike that he had intended for Mordecai? And Mordecai, his intended victim, should become his replacement, wearing the, own, the, the, the ring of power, able to, to protect and save his people. I mean, okay, okay I, you all look completely unimpressed with that. <laughs> Maybe, I'll, I'll grant you this, maybe each one of those events on its own might, might simply be the result of pure chance, right? Yeah, it's possible. But come on, take them together. Pull all this together and the element of chance disappears. He may not appear on stage in the story. He may not be named in the script of the story. But the leading character in this story is God. And he controls the outcome of the story by working providentially through human decisions and apparently random circumstances. I mean, he, he, think about this. He works out the outcome of this story, the protection, the preservation of his people. He achieves this through Xerxes' pride through Vashti's defiance, through Mordecai's prejudice, through Esther's compromise. You think about it. Esther compromised her faith by concealing her identity and giving herself up to this this grotesque parody of a beauty contest, defiled by a Gentile. Yet God worked through that. He achieved his purposes through that. The message of this story is that that when God seems absolutely absent 
from our world, from our lives. He's not. He's very much present. Where's the hope needle on the gauge of your life at the moment? Are you in, is hope in short supply for you, for your loved ones, for the communities that you're a part of? Can I get personal? Well, I, I will, because I'm, I'm talking. I'm going to get personal. <laughs> Have you been working really hard to reset a fractured relationship and it's just not healing. They still want you out of their lives. Have you been wrestling with a, 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 a destructive pattern of thinking? And, it, and it, it issues in a destructive pattern of behaving, and you know it's destructive, and you've been trying to fight it, and it feels at the moment like you're losing the battle. Have you made a decision and you really regret it? I mean, there are nights when you lie awake in the darkness, looking up at a blank ceiling, and you think to yourself, will this decision rule me and my loved ones forever? Maybe you've heard of a diagnosis that, that afflicts someone very close to you. Maybe it's you. And it feels like there's very little hope. Hear the word of the Lord to you today. God says that he is with you. It, it, it may seem like he's not. He may seem far away. But at those times, at this time, hold on to the reality that he is with you. And he is working out his purposes for you through everything. That's what God does. He's sovereign and he is faithful. The New Testament says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. He works through our mistakes. He works through our sin and the sin of others. He works through tragedies even. He works through boozy banquets. He works through ridiculous beauty pageants. He works through blood-stained crosses. When you think about it, if ever it seemed like there was a time when God was absent and hope had left the building, it was the cross. And yet we now know, on this side of the cross, that, that on the cross, as, as Paul, the Apostle Paul puts it, God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. God is sovereign and he's faithful. He's sovereign over everything. Not just the miraculous, but also the mundane. And he's faithful. So hear the word of the Lord. He's with you. He's with you. 
and you are safe in his care. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this story that speaks of your love and your faithfulness and your sovereignty. And we rejoice um, that this story is just one of many stories that does that. It's a story that, that ultimately points forward to the greatest story of all, the story of Christmas and Easter and how you came to us as a, as a prince and you didn't just risk your life like Esther, you gave up your life to save us, your people. Oh, we confess that so often we lose sight of that. We, 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 we don't remember and we, we forget that you are present with us. You are sovereign and you're faithful and we, we don't live like that. Forgive us. Forgive us. And we thank you that you are so gracious. Would you give us the grace to live in a way that, that shows others something of your faithfulness, something of your providence in our lives and our world. We ask it in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.